0: It's wonderful to be back at PMC. I was telling Melba that I missed last week because some of you know that my father is a Baptist preacher and I had to fill in for him at a family funeral in New Orleans and preach a eulogy. But it's wonderful to be here and standing here at this, this pulpit, which is a lectern of sorts. It reminds me of a story from the 1960s of a young college student who entered a lecture hall. Her name was Judith Cohen, and she was originally from Chicago, and she came all the way to study at UCLA. And the class was called Intellectual History of Europe. And the professor promised that he would, quote, discuss women's contributions to Western thought in the final class. And this was a new age, and this historian professor, he took note of all the young feminists like Judith, who started attending his lectures, And when that time came at the end of the semester, he walked into the class and he said, women's contributions to European intellectual history, they made none, walked out. Judith had registered to sit at the college's desk in this class but found that there was no seat at the table for her. There had always been female luminaries in the arts and sciences and in government, wore various hats in society. But this historian that taught the class just wants to see them in an apron. So in the 1970s, Judith stared down the face of gender roles and decided to have a dinner party. Now by this, I mean the dinner party. And the dinner party is a massive installation artwork that documents several millennia of women's historical and mythical figures who shaped the world that we live in. It's a large room size installation work that takes the form of a three wing table connected with an opening in the middle. And each table has 13 place settings, each for a historical guest. So depending on where you are seated, there's a proportionally equal arrangement to your left and to your right side. And this artwork communicates the history of those who surpassed the confines of tradition that they were born into through a traditional craft work and high art carried on the medium of a traditional female gathering place. Most of the plates have been painted in abstractions of the feminine form showing how these historical figures lives birth civilization. That is in the case in all, except for about two of those plates. And one of this pair has the uh, images uh, representation of the escaped Northern slaves slash turned abolitionists and women's rights suffragists, Sojourner Truth. And outside of the biographically specific details of each plate, there is a less ornate cup that is identical at each place setting. The glaze on the outside of the ceramic goblet is simple yet reflective and the inside has a liquid metallic finish, almost like, uh, like a crucible. And completing the display is an intricately designed table setting, complete with narrative imagery and the honoree's embroidered name over the edge of the table and drips over the linen table spread. And on each plate, the stories of our greatest foremothers are set for visual consumption. The installation is completed with a foundational framing element that also gives each historical figure context to their lives, and that is the floor. In the case of Sojourner, you can see that the tiles that uphold her life and connect to her story are triangles just like the table. And written on them are the names of women that are not at the table, but still fed into or were fed from Sojourner's Plate. They are names like Harriet Beecher Stowe, Harriet Tubman, Zora Neale Hurston. Altogether, the 999 names on the floor outnumber the 39 at the table. Yet this dinner party is not an honoring of hierarchy, but a collaborative celebration of service. Even in its production, Judith combined painting that she mastered with the collaboration of a team of researchers, of potters and knitters. But before the storytelling artists could display her decade later rebuttal to her historian professor and change how we perceive history in the art world, she would have to change herself. She had been born with the name Judith Cohen, bearing her father's uh, Hebrew surname that denoted lineage to the uh, ancient Levitical priesthood or the koenim that Moses' brother st- uh, set up. And then later she took on the name through marriage of Gerowitz. But when she was later widowed, she decided to make a change. It says that in a 1970 art show, she hung a banner that read, Judy Gerowitz hereby divests herself of all names imposed upon her through male social dominance and chooses her own name, Judy Chicago. We hear a similar story in the Gospel of Mark this morning and it tells us of an instance where a Jewish teacher, a rabbi named Jesus, confronted his students' understanding of historical greatness. Two of his students mustered up every bit of privilege they possessed and told their teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Sounds like some privileged millennials there. I don't know what what generation we're on to next. Jesus responded by challenging these men to divest themselves of the imposition of social dominance and choose to make a change. And I believe this morning that he still turns the tables on us today and asks us to do likewise. If you follow me this morning, let's have a discussion of the scripture. So by this, I mean that Mark ten thirty-five through 37 begins a meaningful distillation, documenting Jesus's perspective on how the pursuit of power has shaped the world that we live in. It takes the form of a three-sided conversation with an opening in the middle for reflection, And after the two rabbi students aspired to make a name for themselves, it occurred within an overall community of 13 place settings, one for Jesus and each for his 12 disciples. So, depending on where Jesus found himself on a theological issue, he could find uh, disciples on the left and the right of him that didn't agree with each other. Yet the gospel communicates to us that no matter the history or tradition, of a particular issue or position. As contemporary disciples, we must have Jesus at the center of our reflection. We Christians should have a Christocentric perspective on matters. After Rabbi Jesus briefed his disciples on their pending trip to Jerusalem, two of them engaged him in a three-way dialogue from two different vantage points. They heard Jesus speak of the misfortunes that he would encounter in the city, but some kind of way, their thoughts lingered to their own fortunes. Mark says, James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And perhaps they saw Jesus as the new Moses, leading God's people to a new promised land. And if so, maybe they figured that they were the new Joshua, the new Caleb, right alongside him as he uh, ushered them into a city takeover. But at this point, Jesus found himself as the spokesman for God to the 12 disciples. Similarly, like Moses was a spokesman in his role to the 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes themselves being outgrowths of the 12 sons of Israel that relocated to Egypt. The gospel continues, what do you want for me to do for you? Jesus asked, and in the center of this community of 13, Jesus responded to the pleas of the least, just like the God who heard the cries of the Egyptian slaves. Then the two separate disciples joined in in one voice for a shared objective, like Joshua and Caleb, they aspired to be generals in what they saw as the advancing army of the Lord. The Bible says, they said, allow one of us to sit on your right hand and the other one on your left when you enter into your glory. We know along with Peter, these two in a prior chapter had witnessed the transfiguration and saw Jesus's glory. And maybe they wanted to ensure that if it happened again, that they would take the places of Moses and Elijah alongside him. It reminds me of a similar story with the same Sojourner truth that Judy Chicago included at her table, as she sat down with Harriet Beecher Stowe, the, uh, the writer of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And along with being a feminist, I don't know if you know this, an abolitionist speaker, she was also a disciple of Christ. Not only was she a disciple of Christ, Sojourner was a preacher. And she told Harriet Beecher Stowe about an instance where she requested something of God. She said, I went to the Lord and I asked him to give me a new name. The Lord gave me Sojourner. But it seems that her humble request to change her slave name was a bit different from Zebedee's son's request to have a greater name. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I've been been Baptist again for for another week. (laughs) But managing the opportunity to sculpt their minds of these disciples, James and John, Jesus painted the abstractions more clearly with a metaphor that possibly they could understand. And in Mark 10, 38 through 40, he showed them the kind of sacrifice that would birth salvation. And in the case of delivering the kingdom of God, the centerpiece would involve personal suffering for truth outside of our own biographical specifics there is set for each and every one of us a cup of suffering that serves as the crucible for our cross coinciding with the discipline of suffering is the individually designed life path that surrounds it your cross is completely yours and mine is completely mine but each of our names are woven onto a narrative that glorifies God in reflecting the life of Christ. And on each path is the story of our great forebearer, that is set before us for our spiritual consumption. The centerpiece of Jesus's preaching had always been the kingdom of God. James and John understood that they were witnessing the birth of a new age. But their questions revealed that they didn't quite understand the process of how that occurred. Mark says, Jesus replied, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup or receive the baptism that I receive? It was as if they saw the birth canal through which the kingdom would pass, but didn't understand the labor that it would involve. Mary had birthed Jesus, God's son, into the world, but only Jesus... Would be able to deliver humanity from judgment. The brothers picked up the metaphor of Jesus's cup and baptism and affirmed their own self confidence. Rabbi Jesus met their confidence with a prophecy about the hand of providence. The gospel continues when they replied, We can. Jesus said, You will drink the cup I drink and receive the baptism I receive. After all, being a disciple meant more than just being a student. Christ was training them to follow him as his apprentices. And at that place, at the story, he pivoted. The setting that he was describing was not a universal truth, but a prophecy of a one-time historic event. Then the Bible says... But to sit at my right hand or my left, it isn't mine to give. It belongs to those it has been prepared for. And that specific descriptive language that Jesus uses of the left and the right hand, it is only repeated once in the following gospel of Mark. And it is used when Jesus finds himself nailed between two transgressors, one on his left, and one on his right. Jesus' idea of glory seemed a little bit more like the disciples' idea of shame. Maybe I should give uh, fuller context to that earlier Sojourner Truth quote. And she talks with uh, Herod Beecher Stowe, and over the decades, Sojourner had been involved in various Christian groups, uh, such as the Quakers, the Methodists, the AME, the Holiness Movement, and then finally the Adventists. And while she was generally revered, her calling as a preacher was not always accepted. So you can understand her practice as a traveling speaker when she said, I went to the Lord and asked him to give me a new name. And the Lord gave me Sojourner because I was to travel up and down the land, showing the people their sins and being a sign unto them. And afterwards, I told the Lord I wanted another name because everybody has two names. And the Lord gave me truth because I was to declare the truth to the people. Her cup of suffering began with a treatment as a slave to her captors. But the truth is that it continued as a servant of the Lord. You know, when I think about it, you know, Anabaptist has Baptist right in the name. So maybe we can, maybe I can get a little excited in here. Let me continue on. Jesus' instruction to the two disciples was completed in Mark ten forty-one through 45 with a foundational framing element that gave it context to his followers. In his sojourn from Galilee to Jerusalem, you can see that uplifting the lives of the contrite and humble was the foundation of his platform. Written just 10 verses earlier are the Savior's words, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Those last may have not been at the table then, but would still be fed from the Savior's cup. The humble names of the last may not be known to history, but are somehow woven into his story. Sorry, this corny line, but I had to use it. They are the innumerable names of they who fall into the floor, calling on the name of the one God. Yes, at the table of the Lord, there is no hagiography that justifies a hierarchy, but a collective call to service. Even at his table, Jesus prepared a place for a team of rebels, publicans, and doubters. And after Jesus had grounded the brothers in the reality of what his mission was, the other disciples arrived. The ten disciples who weren't at the table, of course, outnumbered the two who were at the table. Mark says, now when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became angry with James and John. We saw how earlier they had already been involved in a smaller inner circle of the disciples, but the sons of Zebedee's competitive gene had even edged out Peter out of this selected group. And the rabbi seized this moment to remind them of what upholding the table of their brotherhood was. It was the same connection that Moses fused to unite 12 discontiguous tribes into a nation. The gospel continues, Jesus called them over and said, you know that the ones who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles show off their authority over them, and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. As Tim actually reminded us a few weeks ago, the Hebrew word for Gentile, goyim, this means the nations. Now, in the Greek New Testament, they use the word ethnos, but it still has the feel and the usage as the Hebrew one. And it reminds us of the calling in Jesus, the calling that he repeated from Moses, where God took a people who are not a nation and turned them into a nation to be an example to the nations. And what God did in Israel the Son of God, does in the church. Finally, Jesus lays out the blueprint for the building of his church from the ground up. The foundation of this community would be on the people he found named and numbered on the floor. Then the Bible says, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve, and to give his life to liberate many people. Suddenly we hear the return of the voice of God that spoke through Moses concerning Pharaoh's slaves. Israel is my son, even my firstborn, and I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. That messianic call that jives with the Mosaic mission can be heard even in the words of Sojourner Truth's testimony to Harriet Beecher Stowe. Because her full quote starts off this way. When I left the house of bondage, I left everything behind. I wasn't going to keep nothing of Egypt on me. And so I went to the Lord and asked him to give me a new name. And the Lord gave me Sojourner because I was to travel up and down the land, showing the people their sins and being a sign unto them. And afterwards, I told the Lord I wanted another name because everybody had two names. And the Lord gave me truth because I was to declare the truth unto the people. Scripture sometimes calls it Egypt or Babylon, Sodom, the Philistines, Rome, or just the Gentiles, all can be summed up as the nations, the oppressive forces that God's people are called not to pattern themselves after. You can see it in the treatment of our Mennonite forerunners, simple folk who moved from nation to nation after they were kicked out just because they wanted to live out Jesus' his Sermon on the Mount. Because the suffering that follows discipleship is not because we abide under a sadistic God, but it is because we are surrounded by people who do not respect and elevate themselves based on denigrating servants. Let's wrap this thing up. It's, it's funny thing that when it's observed that Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party that it has uh, 13 places at a long table, and that's the basic element of how it's constructed, that is similar to Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. And Judy Chicago, re- uh, she's fond of saying it's a reinterpretation of The Last Supper from the point of view of those who've done the cooking throughout most of history. And standing here at this lectern reminds me of when I was a young art student at a Jesuit University. The professor standing behind the lectern in that art history course taught me that the greats included women like Artemisia Genolesci, Frida Kahlo, Carol Walker, and of course, Judy Chicago, because these artists inspired her to teach. standing here at this pulpit, it reminds me that even though that uh, school welcomed her to teach in that classroom she was not welcome to preach in its chapel now i understand that our roman catholic brothers they believe this because they take scripture literally when it comes to leadership and only choose male leadership to follow the tradition of jesus all male apostles and moses all male priesthood and likewise i understand that our more fundamentalist protestant brothers do this in preaching because they take the Bible literally when it comes to preaching and following Paul's advice to the Corinthians that women should keep silent in all the churches as if it was a rule for every congregation throughout history. And you may think, you know, we welcome women here and some of our best pulpiteers in this congregation are women and preach. But take note that we are born into a world whose history was based on male privilege and dominance. And we live in a Christian culture where things like biblical manhood and biblical womanhood are taught as concepts based on the woman falling under the man's authority, not recognizing that that was part of the curse. That's not something that we follow as a precedent to be Christians. It's interesting that we have these two different standards of how we're gonna follow scripture in our lives. But if we're gonna take the word of God literally, let's not pick and choose. It seems like we have a more literal standard to govern women and a more liberal standard that graces men. Standards that led sojourner truth to be received more outside of the church than inside one. But Mark says that when Jesus, the literal word of God, spoke to the two brothers and the other ten seated around them, he literally called these men to forsake the glory of authority and cleave unto service. The gospel continues that when Jesus, the literal word of God, when he was sacrificed, he joined two malefactors on the cross who were sitting on his left and right hand, the places prepared for them. And he literally fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. But before then the Bible says that after Jesus, the literal word of God served the 12 men, the bread and the wine at supper. He literally got up, put on an apron and got down on the floor and wash their feet. Regardless of uh, whatever verses we take literally, as Christians it is imperative that we take Jesus seriously. Remember that when Judy Chicago, formerly Judith Cohen, set the centerpiece and cup for the famous abolitionists and feminists, the name on the place setting did not read Isabella Baumfree, even though that was Sojourner Truth's birth name. And we know that's because that sojourner said when she left the house of bondage, she wasn't going to take anything of Egypt with her. And oh, if we could follow her voice today. But it seems like we like the nice things that we inherited from Egypt. Oh, they've got some nice things there. In our patriarchal, we have fancied ourselves as pharaohs princes of the church, each man a king in his own house. But God never called Pharaoh to be his son. God called his slaves to be his children. So I asked you this morning, brothers and sisters to pattern yourselves after the son of God, who when commanded like a slave, do for us whatever we ask. He responded like a servant what would you have me to do for you? The God-man Jesus who forsook his privilege in glory, who divested himself of dominance and power, the son of man who rose up from the bondage of the grave, I say to you, brothers, stand up from the table. Give up your seat to someone else. Put on your apron and get down to circus.